Whether it's hiring me to speak at your next sales kickoff or delivering one of my high-impact story-selling workshops for your sales team virtually or in person, then don't worry, I've got your back, okay? Head on down to www.theraviregiani.com forward slash contact to book a complimentary discovery call to learn more about how I can help you and your sales team sell more with story. Welcome to the Influential Communicator Podcast, where my mission is to help B2B salespeople sell more by becoming authentic storytellers and impactful communicators without suppressing who they truly are or their values. I'm your host, Ravi Rajani, and without further wait, let's get into it. When I think of an influential communicator, I think of Andy Paul. Now get this people, Andy's first ever sales job was selling women's shoes at JCPenney. But having graduated from Stanford after majoring in history, Andy was later described as too analytical by his first employer. Did that story that others projected onto him stick? Hell no, man. Andy went on to close hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue for various different companies before starting his own business in the year 2000. And as he would say, I'm not your typical salesperson. I'm a bit of an introvert. And it turns out that being contrarian, owning who you truly are and continually being a student of sales and life is the key to a sales career spanning over four decades. Now, today, Andy is an author, podcaster, and sales consultant focused on helping leaders and their teams unlock the power of continuous learning so they can transform how they perform. And today, people, I've pinned the man himself down to specifically discuss one thing which I know you'll be curious about because I don't think we talk about it enough, but it's how to extract a buyer's story and use curiosity to uncover it. Welcome to the show, my friend. What's happening? <laughs> well, thank you for that very generous introduction. Thank you. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, you've got the story and the credibility to back it up, my friend. All good. All good. Make me feel old. Mm-mm. Let's just say a veteran in the game, a veteran in the game versus... Very good. Yeah, that's yeah. it. <laughs> Listen, man, congrats on the launch of your six-week program, Selling School. I saw that on your LinkedIn a couple of days ago. Oh, you put you. a post out of it, man. And it was funny because I know one of the things that you're going to teach people in that is how to be better at sales without being salesy, which I really think is your slogan. And it got me thinking, I'd love to know, was there ever a time that you became salesy because you felt like you had to please your mentors? And if so, when was the moment you broke free from it? <laughs> you know, I don't think there ever was a moment, not because not because I was aware enough at that point in time not to, not to be salesy. It's just that I couldn't be, right? I mean, it just, I would fail at it horribly. So yeah, I don't, there wasn't that sort of moment of, of realization, but the realization was at some point was, oh, wow, why is what I'm doing working? Because I don't really fit the mold. And there are other people that fit the mold that seemingly were doing okay, but I never felt like, okay, I was, I was in the mold. So yeah, I sort of started being sort of introspective about that pretty early in my career to just figure out, okay, well, how am I going to be me in this business and still succeed? See, I find that really interesting because there's a, there's a guy called Jay Shetty who said a quote, which was, you can't be what you can't see. And at that time, just starting out in sales, did you ever find it difficult where maybe you were forging this new path that not necessarily others were doing? So you couldn't see somebody else doing what you were doing. So did you have a mentor or somebody who backed you who was like, Andy, you're on the right path. I got your back. Yeah, no, I was very fortunate several times in my career is to have bosses, mentors who, yeah, encouraged me to be me, right? And to sort of pursue things the way I wanted to pursue it. And in some cases, they were sort of contrarians themselves. I mean, it's at one very significant stage in my career when I was just sort of getting into selling into large enterprises, work for a guy who was yeah, very atypical in many respects, painfully smart. Thoroughly analytical about everything, but very little patience for people that were wasting his time. And he was just brilliant in, in many ways, in unexpected ways. And for me, it was like, okay, yeah, I can learn a lot from this person. 
And mm. yeah, I've, I've, I've written about some things with that he's did, he did, but you know, one, he was a big believer in that, you know, the best discovery tools was a quote. So even, you know, really large deals. Yeah. One of the first things you'd get from him, if you're a prospect, you'd get a quote. Well, you know, based on our first conversation, this is sort of, I think this is going to turn out to be, and you took that price objection right out of the equation up front. Cause I was like, well, no, 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 there's way too much. It's not what we're thinking. Well, let's, let's talk about that. You know, what were you thinking? And it's just as opening the door to discovery, a quote actually is a very powerful way to do it. And yet we seem to want to do the sort of choreographed dance to get through, you know, let's have our first discovery. Then we'll do a demo and then we'll do a deeper discovery. Then it's like, yeah, just give them the price. And so, yeah, he was, he was wonderful in that regard in terms of, yeah, I said being a little going against the grain and, and, but being hugely effective in doing so. It's so funny, man. When I was at university, I remember, I think I was selling tickets to a charity event that we were putting on at the time. And I was selling outside of our library and this dude called Brian comes up to me. He's like, man, the way that you're talking to these people, you should be in sales. You can talk a lot. And I remember at the time I was like, fantastic. And I was thinking in hindsight, that is probably one of the worst things that somebody could tell somebody because they never say, Hey, buddy, you're a great listener. You should right. be in sales, right? Which is really what it should be. But it's so funny how the narrative of what sales once was and ultimately what you are shifting is so different. And I love it. I love it. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, the primary narrative of sales is still about talking too much. But I mean, yeah. despite the tools that are out there that record phone calls and you can look at your talk ratios and so on, we're still fundamentally training sellers to go out and pitch their products. Talk. Well, hey, I mean... It's one of those things where when we do talk, you talk a lot about curiosity as something to use when we do have a conversation. Now, in a recent LinkedIn post of yours, you said the following words. You said, as humans, we are born curious. Curiosity is the tool we use to navigate the unfamiliar, which includes every sales opportunity you find yourself in. So what do you think stops salespeople from tapping into that innate characteristic today, that character trait today? Well, part of it is because the way we, we train people, right? And enable them. We say, look, here's your ICP. We're going to call on these type of companies. And we're going to talk to these types of people, personas within yeah. the organizations. And these are things they're interested in. So we're going to ask these questions and you should hear an answer sort of like this. Hmm. Well, that doesn't encourage curiosity. It's like, hey, follow the script, follow the playbook. But the fact is, everybody you speak to, even if they fit and conform to a persona, they're a unique individual in a unique situation. And so if you go in and just treat them the same and expect to hear the same from everybody, then you're going to develop a very superficial level of understanding about things that are most important to that buyer and the way that you can make a difference for them. And unfortunately, that's how we train sellers. Take sort of the, comply to this process. We've got this process laid out. We have this playbook. Just conform to it, right? Execute that and everything will be okay. And it's just not the way it works. And we've got the data to prove it, right? I mean, we can look throughout the whole software industry and we see these incredibly low win rates. Hey, if you're only closing one of every five deals, you're not doing it right. There's no other way to, <laughs> no other way to frame it. You're just not doing it right. So, but that comes from sort of the, the emphasis that managers these days, especially true over the last 10, 15 years, is they've prized conformity over individuality. And I think that is one of the big issues. So in part, one of the big issues why I wrote the book. Mm, I bet. I bet. And I mean, I'm, we're going to dig deep into that a little bit later. But, I, I, you know, before we go on, there's something which I'm curious about with you, because I always, I always wonder with individuals like yourself who have a very, very strong understanding of who they are, their mission and the value that they really want to give to the world. Is that something you were born with or were there certain experiences in your life which led to, you know what, actually, I need to shift this if I want to achieve why? Were you always born this way? <laughs> born were way. you born this way? Not always born this way. Were you born this way? <laughs> I think that one of the, the traits I was I don't know, born with, but developed very early on was, yeah, this curiosity, right? Just mm. wanting to learn, being interested in a broad range of topics throughout yeah. my entire life. I mean, I, I, you know, 
used to tell the story in my family about when my father would come home from work and him and my mom would sit together and have a martini and the kids would sort of be banished uh, for a little while. Yeah. In the day, I would be in the family living room. And at this time, we owned a world book encyclopedia, you know, 26 volumes, A to Z. And I literally read them all. I mean, over the course of several years, starting as about five, because I learned how to read relatively early, is I was just reading the World Book Encyclopedia. Yeah, every day, practically. And yeah, I'm always accused of having a head full of really useless knowledge, but the fact is it's it's really stood me in good stead and throughout my life because I'm able to engage with people throughout the world. I've traveled the world on business and talked to people from a variety of cultures and backgrounds and interests and always find a way to make a connection. And I think that just came from, yeah, this willingness to learn and absorb as much information I could and be as interested in the world around me. And I think that more than any really sort of specific knowledge is just the most fantastic grounding you can have. I bet, man, because that's a unique skill set in itself. And I do find that a lot of people, if they have self-awareness, they may say, you know what? I know at points I'm constantly focusing on the sale or commission and I stink of it in the sale and I want to be more curious. So I suppose if somebody is actually telling that story to themselves, is there an exercise or a mindset or a framework they can embody to start training that curiosity muscle? Yeah. I mean, so curiosity is interesting because so it's sort of trained out of us as kids. You know, mm. so you get into school, right? How often you hear a teacher say, hey, enough with the questions. Just do what you're told, right? And you'll hear that in jobs, right? As, you know, yeah, bosses don't want to hear the questions. Just do what you're supposed to be doing. And so it's oftentimes discouraged. And people that are curious are considered to be disruptive. And I've certainly been accused of that from time to time. It's just, yeah, I just, I want to know. Right. I want to know the why. I wasn't, I was never satisfied. It's like, this is how we do things. It's like, oh, okay, fine. But why are we doing it that way? Mm. And because I want to know why it would work. And in terms of an exercise, I think one of the best ones, the simplest ones to start with, let's say, if you're in sales, is learn how to ask follow up questions. And now, this may seem inherently intuitive, and it's really not. If you listen to enough phone calls, Sellers are so intent on getting through the questions they know they're supposed to ask yeah. that they don't really bother to try to make sure they understand what they're being told. As I draw the distinction in my book, Sell Without Selling Out, is there's a difference between knowing something and understanding it. And for us as sellers, we need it to the point where we understand what the customer tells us. We understand why it's important to them, right? Why is this something that there's a challenge that's important to us. There's an outcome they want to achieve that's important to them, as opposed to just the fact they want to achieve it. It's like, well, why, right? So follow-up questions are just an easy way to sort of break your habitual <laughs> scripted question asking and just pause after you ask a question, you hear a response and pause and say, interesting. So what else can you tell me about that? Hmm. That's great. Interesting. What else can you tell me more about that? You need to pause, people. You need to go back and listen to that again because that's a, yeah. that's a, even your tone is curious. And I don't know if that's intentional or if it's natural, but even your tone is curious. Yeah. So it's, it's, you are interested, right? It's, yeah. it's, sellers get distracted because, again, they think they have to get the answers to these questions. Yeah. It's like, well, first of all, why? I mean, who says those are the important questions? Just because your sales manager says they're important. Are they really the important questions? Mm. I mean, you may find out. Yeah, perhaps they are. Perhaps there's others that aren't being asked, which is usually the case. So when you're in a conversation with the buyer, you're asking a question. I, again, I hear this on recordings. Is seller ask a question, the buyer will answer it, and there'll be this pause. And now the seller, or the buyer, excuse me, has opened the door to a follow-up question. They want the seller to pursue it. But the seller's pausing. You know what they're doing is they're recording the answer, writing it down, taking a note, and then they're going down to the next question on their list. Mm. And it's like, no, ask a follow-up question. You know, they can't hear me. I'm shouting, no, no, ask a follow-up question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that's what the buyer wants. And that's what you want, right? That's how you're going to start saying, okay, in the mind's eye of the buyer is this, oh, the seller's more curious now. There's more interest in really understanding us. And I was just wrote about in my book. I said, you know, when you're 
make the effort to understand someone. What you're doing is you're giving value to the ideas and the goals and ambitions that they have. Mm. Right. So think about that just in a human interaction standpoint. When I make an effort to understand you, I am giving value to the things that are important to you. Now, you don't think that makes a difference in a sales situation with the buyer to make them feel understood, valued even? Of course it does. And it's very simple as you just make sure you really understand the things that are important to them. Make sure you really keep digging, asking simple follow-up questions. Yeah. Hey, what else can you tell me about that? Or that's interesting. Tell me more about that. And they, they want to, right? The whole point of a sales call is not for you to talk. It's to get the buyer to talk. So follow-up questions elicit greater insight from the buyer about, yeah, the challenges they have and what they've been struggling with and what they could try want to do if they could address those challenges. And when you begin to understand that, then you've got a level of understanding that perhaps your competitors don't have. And the buyers are aware of that. I read about my book on more than one occasion, you're winning big deals, working for small companies, competing against big companies, thinking we had no chance of winning. And when we ask the customer why they chose us, they said, because you're the only one that made us feel like you understood what we were trying to do. It's insane, isn't it? That is Mm. insane. And and you know what's funny as well? You've got a thousand plus episodes on your podcast where you mm-hmm. literally have to do that, where you've got to remove yourself from the script of questions you should ask this specific guest about oh, having yeah. read their book and then actually focus on having that conversation. And that just shows because success leaves clues and you are successful as a seller. And then you're re I suppose recreating that experience on a podcast and what 2 million something plus like downloads to date or something crazy. Yeah. Almost twice that number. Yeah, no, it's, it's always, Always surprising to me as someone who's a guest, a frequent guest on sales podcasts, yeah. how ill-prepared many of the hosts are really? to have a conversation. And I'm thinking, okay, this is a sales podcast. Is this the way this person sells? <laughs> yeah. And the answer, unfortunately, is probably, yeah, this is the way they sell. It is just superficial curiosity, standard questions. I mean, every time I go on sales podcasts and they say, oh, we've got 10 questions we always ask, it's like, Oh, first of all, I grimace a little bit. And then I take it as a personal challenge to break out of the questioning mold. <laughs> yeah. Force them to talk about something. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I did that as a seller too, is, you know, if I was running into somebody who I just, either you know, full of themselves, full of their own sense of their own self-importance and so on. I, I would make it a mission to try to puncture their balloon. <laughs> talk to me about that. So tell me an example of like one of the most prolific examples when you did that successfully. Well, I mean, it's, it's just, Sometimes it's just gentle teasing, right? Mm. I mean, I, I yeah, make people sort of see how they're sort of full of themselves, but in a way that's, you know, not mean spirited and so on, but it's, yeah, I try to, yeah, that's just me. I sort of tease people a little bit and just get them to, like I said, come down from their pedestal and be a human being. A few years ago, I heard a Jerry Seinfeld actually talking about his father, who was a salesperson. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. And his father used to tell him that, yeah, when he was out meeting with a customer and the person was just not giving anything in return, Jerry's father would do the same. He'd try to, he called it a little game he plays, break the face and try to make the person <laughs> laugh. And yeah, you got to do that, right? It's, it's just, you're, again, you're bringing yourself to the game and you're involved. You're, you're intimately engaged with the buyer, but you know, sometimes you have to, <laughs> you have to help them be a little human too. And, didn't always work, but most times it did. And you know, people sort of say, Oh yeah, yeah, I don't need to be the stiff that I'm being here. Let's just have a conversation. And that's mm. really all you're trying to do. It's funny, buddy of mine, Jason Fear now, who is a negotiator for really big mining companies, his mm. consulting business focuses on that. And I had him on the show. I was like, dude, when you're in a conversation with somebody who's got high levels of, or negotiation with somebody who's got high levels of narcissism and self-importance, mm. how do you break the chain? And he's something very similar. He's like, dude, I just, I just call them out on something which others aren't willing to do, but in a really yes. playful manner. And right. it works wonders. And, but sometimes it doesn't, but a lot of the time it does. It's, it's funny you say the same thing. Well, because those people aren't accustomed to having people talk to them that way. Yeah. And you think, okay, well, so they're really sort of hoping somebody that works for them will do that, right? Yeah. And, and yeah, so it's like, yeah, sort of takes them back because you know, they're accustomed to being treated with kid gloves or whatever. And it's like, 
no, I'm not going to do that. You know, we're here mm-hmm. to here to do business. We're here to have fun. We're here to, you know, enjoy this as much as we can get something accomplished. And yeah, if you're an impediment, yeah, I said, I just poke at people a little bit and, you know, try to help them see perhaps how they're being gently. In a nice way, in a nice way. And I think it really lends itself to you and what you stand for as well about humanizing the buying experience. And I think storytelling is an amazing way to do that. It's what this podcast is about for everybody listening. Now, I know you believe this one thing that every buyer has a story to tell that will influence the decision they make. And that salesperson's job is to use curiosity to uncover it. So for context, for those listening right now, what do you mean by every buyer has a story to tell and how can that story prevent a sale? Well, it's how it helps you win the sale, right? So Mm. yeah, you know, there's a lot written about storytelling and books written about seven stories. Every salesperson wants to be able to tell blah, 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 blah. And again, a little bit of a contrarian approach to it is say, well, really at heart, there's really one story you need to be able to tell. And that's the buyer's story. Mm-hmm. And because that's the one they're most interested in, right? They want to know what success is going to feel like. That's the story they want to know. What's success going to be like? They're using mm-hmm. your product or service. Yeah. And so I call that in the book, I call it the vision of success. Mm-hmm. And you build that with the buyer. Right. So through the questions you ask, through the various types of questions I outline in the book is, you know, you ask question, customer questions about the trade-offs they might make. Would you, would this be a better approach for you or would this be approach? Oh, you want to take that approach? Well, then what would the impact be on your business if you did this versus this approach? You, know, you start quantifying the various aspects of the vision you're building, let's say. I, mean, I talk about different types of questions that take customers through mental test drives of your product or service, all get a purpose designed to get them to visualize the, the impact of using your product or service. And again, what success is going to feel like. And I remember reading this quote from John Steinbeck years ago. Okay. I thought it was such a great quote. American authors and Paraphrasing, he basically said, you know, if the story isn't about the listener, they're not going to listen because what people want to hear is about the familiar. And that's really true. Anything about the stories we really like is, you know, we identify with protagonists and well, it's because there's something vaguely familiar about it, right? There's elements of it. And so, yeah, people fundamentally want to hear their story. And that's what you focus on building. And so the key to that though, is building this, the story of, of success, this vision of success is understanding. It's your curiosity. Can I get to the point where with the buyer that I truly understand the things that are most important and that we agree on what that end point would look like, right? And now what we're doing is we're going to build the story of how we're going to get there. And yeah, if you can't reach that mutual level of understanding relatively early on in your process in the buyer's journey, you know, you're never able to build this vision of success that aligns with what the buyer wants to do. And when you say a success story, are you talking about also a story about somebody who is, well, I suppose somebody who has a similar DNA to the prospect who's gone from pain to glory and experienced a specific conflict? Is that what you mean? So they can rehearse what it would be like to be in their shoes? Or are we talking about something completely different We're here? Just putting it completely in their context. Okay. You know, what's, it gonna, what's it gonna feel like for them? Mm corporate level, team level, individual level to use the product or service you're selling, right? You may ask a question of you're talking to a you know, manager division. So well, tell me, so what would the impact be on you if, if you could make this change? Oh, interesting. Now, what would the impact be on you, meaning your team? Then we take it on what it mean for you personally? Well, let's right. walk through, let's say the person on your team that would be doing this, what would their day look like, right? Mm. If they were using our product or service, what would their day look like? Huh, what would your day look like? All we're doing is we're creating these images in our mind of what's like to actually be engaged in using the product or the service. And that's what you're doing is you're making it real for them. Cause then you're going to say, okay, what's like take through the day. And then I have six types of questions I talk about in my chapter on curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of my favorites being the impact questions you ask. Well, so what would the impact be on your revenue? What the impact be on your productivity? What would the impact be on cost savings? You ask them to quantify in a specific measure, whether it's yes, at dollars, cost savings, whatever, various aspects that quantify it. So it starts making it real, right? Oh, well, God, for a raise revenues, 5% would the impact be of that in dollars. Oh, well, that'd be an extra $100,000 a year, you know, top line. 
Interesting. So what would the impact be of that? And you just, again, you focus on quantifying, asking the buyer to quantify the impact of making the change, both in you know, broad levels and detailed levels. Walk them through visualizing what's like in their routine and the company's routine to use your product or service. And so you're building up this mental image. You're putting them right in the picture frame of what success is going to look like. And the final step is then you're quantifying, you know, from a business case standpoint at the sort of decision maker level, yeah, what the returns could be on that investment. Mm. Put that together, you present that to a buyer. There's been some study done on this, you know, Forrester and some others. So said, yeah, if you are the seller that's the first to present this vision of success that the buyer says, yeah, that would work. Yeah, you're going to win the business like 60% of the time or something. I mean, it's, it's a huge advantage. So you really want to focus on that because from the buyer's perspective, what they're thinking about, again, I wrote about this in the book, is that Herbert Simon, Nobel Prize winner in economics and psychology, I think maybe both, but for sure in economics, studied decision-making for years and years and years and came up with this philosophy they called the theory of bounded rationality that says, look, when people are making decisions, they've got three constraints. We all have time. We don't have unlimited time. We don't have unlimited access to information. And we, nor do we have a perfect understanding of the information we have. Now, when confronted with that, what he found through his research is when people reach a point where they are uncover a solution to the problem that satisfies their requirements and suffices to achieve their desired outcomes, they make a decision. He called it the good enough decision or the satisficed decision. He conjoined satisfied and suffice. Meaning that people say, look, yeah, from you create this vision. It's like, well, that's, yeah, we could spend another six months looking. Maybe we'd find something better, but it's just not the return on that extra investment of time just isn't there. So we got to make a decision. This is the way people operate in the real world is, yeah, there are a group of people that Simon Satis identified called maximizers who, yeah. Psychologically, they are unhappy unless they look at every single possible alternative to satisfy themselves. They make the best choice. They make the best, absolute best choice. But in the business world, that's really not the way it works. So I was saying, as, as I lay out in the book, is there are various milestones mm. creating this vision of success and able to get to this point of the buyer saying, this will work. This is good enough. And yeah, the first connection, build a connection, first to build your credibility, first to trust. Yeah. First understanding, and you do, you do want to get there first. If you can reach that point where you get this vision of success first, yeah, your odds of winning the business go up pretty substantially. And mm. that's what you want. Because aren't sitting around saying, "Look, I want to spend a year to make this decision." If they could make it in six months or three months, if someone helped them reach that point of understanding and and satisfying. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting, your four pillars to human-centric selling anyways, connection, curiosity, understanding, and generosity. And I want to move to those final two pillars in a second. But what I'm curious about is when I listen to, for example, a gong call of a rep sharing a customer success story, mm. sometimes it will be like, well, I'm glad you said that, Andy, because I remember when we helped and it's, it can come across so contrived that it's so bad. But what I try and get them to think about is where to embed that story in the most authentic way possible and in a way that reduces resistance. So for you, with that story that you're teaching people, where do you embed that? And how do you ensure that you're doing so in a way that makes them feel seen, heard, and understood because you've done the right level of discovery with the correct curiosity? Yeah. I mean, I think that, A, you use stories like that in discovery, right? Because mm. you're trying to see, is this something that's relevant to you or is this not relevant to you? Is this important to you? Is this not important to you? Right. Right. And because oftentimes, yeah, sellers throw out those stories and it's like, yeah, I think this works. And but they have no idea, right? They're not really even paying attention to the works. Like somebody's told, this is a story you should tell. And it really doesn't resonate with the buyer at all. Mm. Because you really haven't asked the question to say, yeah, is this aligned with you? What I think sellers should do is rethink sort of the buying journey. And, you know, we've got your, these complicated sales processes you follow. Forget about those, right? Because what you want to do is think about the buying journey in sort of three stages. And there's some overlap, but three stages. I call it the what, the how, and the who. Very simple. 
know, I like to simplify things, as you could tell from reading my book. So the first stage is what stage the buyers go through. And all they're concerned about is what is the challenge that we have that we're trying to solve for? And what are the outcomes that we want to achieve? And that's what they want to come to an understanding of in the what stage. And so they don't care about your product. They don't care about your company. What they really need you to do is help them understand, make sure they really fully understand the challenges they're facing. They fully understand the potential outcomes they can achieve by addressing it. Mm. So the, your job then is to help them sort of define the problem, right? That they're trying to solve. Now, your stories are a good way to do that, right? Because you're saying, okay, is it more like this or is it more like this story? Right. And mm. now you're triangulating where you think the buyer is. Yeah. Most sellers don't do that. Right. Cause they come in into the what stage, which is not about products at all. And they pitch their product. So if you're pitching before you understand, well, you're completely unaligned with the buyer at that point. Mm. Yeah, so, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. So when buyers are starting off, it's not about products. It's not about, <laughs> it's not about companies. It's about them. Right. So now when they, at the end of that, what stage you should have as your goal is yeah we are in agreement as to what the ultimate goal is right i understand so that level of understanding actually happens you know that first level of understanding really happens at the what stage then the buyer goes into the how stage okay two things all right now that we know what what we want to do second stage is how are we going to do it and how are you going to buy it right second stage so they don't really don't know oftentimes even their internal process so now stories start coming back to importance because seller might say, well, you know, we deal with a number of companies like yours that have made the decision at this point in time. This is sort of what they would be thinking about. And at this point in time, this is what, so you're, it's the two levels of how is how are we going to get this done and how are we going to buy it? So mm. your goal as a seller is when you get to the end of the how stage is the buyers will formulate one or more options for Achieving their what, right? It's like say you need to have a Ravi size hole in their description of how they're going to get it done. Meaning you designed yourself in there, right? During the house stage, that's your job. During the house stage, is that when they get to the end of that and they're formulating their options to get it done, you're embedded in there, and the options they want to choose basically look like you wrote them for them. And then when they get to the who stage, it's yeah. You're in the driver's seat. You can screw it up at that point, but it's really yours to lose if you've done a good job. Mm. So in the who stage, you're going to be, again, not that you haven't done some of these things before, but you're really, your focus of building consensus and all things you need to do to get the decision across the finish line. Sellers should really look at it that way. It's really simple. First time to with the buyers, trying to help them understand what they want to do and what they need to do. Second stage is, yeah, get myself designed into their options that they're formulating for how they're going to solve their problems. And the third stage is really sort of what they choose the option they want to pursue at the end of the house stage. So you pretty much know at that point whether you're going to win or not. Hmm. It's interesting because you don't talk about storytelling in a way of, okay, in this specific process, you're going to embed it here because of this. For you, it's more around, it sounds though anyway, through those three stages of keeping it fluid, but ultimately to get them in consensus and figure out, hey, what do you want? Let me help you get there. And hopefully I'm the person to help you achieve that. So yeah, once again, I really love your simplicity with the way that you attack things. Yeah, and we're just building the story together as we go through this process, right? Is, yeah. Because I'm going to ask you a variety of questions and the questions tend to be about, you want to do A or B? If you're okay, you want to do B, what would be the impact of doing B? You don't do A, what would be the impact of not doing A? You, know, you keep quantifying it, you have the buyer you, you know, you bring it down to them, right? Where that starts becoming real, where I've always found that's the key to helping the buyer visualize. Yeah. We want to work with these guys. Cause if we have, if we work with them and do their, you know, use their product, their service, whatever it's embedded in their mind. This is what we're going to achieve with it. No doubt. So, yeah. But yeah, you're, you're working with them to, to build that story together. The other think it was, I can't remember how long ago, but I received a cold email and it led with, 
a customer success story about, hey, we've helped X do Y. This is what they did. Actually, it wasn't really even a story. It was more a, I don't even know what to call it. It was a narrative, but I don't feel like it was a story, but I digress. But it led with that. And that really made me feel not seen, heard, or understood. And it immediately broke broke report because I was like, you don't know me. You haven't asked the right questions to get to know me. You know what I mean? Oh, I remember having a conversation with, yeah, a seller about this and this sort of senior level person. There's, this is during the pandemic. I was interviewing them on my show, but talking about says, yeah, so what we're doing is, yeah, we're having these conversations with buyers. And so we sort of lead with this, you know, we've been talking to a lot of, you know, a lot of companies in your industry and, and this is sort of what we've learned. And I said, well, that's sort of problematic. What you should have said was, God, we've been talking a lot of companies in the industry about this problem. We'd love to get your opinion on it. Mm. Right? Yes. Instead, yeah. we said is, we're going to tell you what we learned because we don't really care what you think. Whereas instead, you make it inclusive. Say, well, so we're really interested in getting your feedback on this. Before you even tell them, sorry, well, that's interesting. Well, that's sort of aligned with what everything else we've heard from these other companies. That's right. Yeah. But Make the people feel included instead of excluded. And there's really simple things to your point that you do as sellers that start excluding people, start making them feel like you're preaching to them as opposed to really supporting them. And I, I talk about this in the book, you know, a very simple example is this idea of when you <laughs> when you're talking to people, you can it's called a shift support, a shift response or a support response to something a buyer says. An example is as somebody says, and this happens in conversation all the time oh we went on vacation and and we got to the hotel and they didn't have our reservation they were going oh, we've been planning this vacation for years and it was just horrible now a lot of people would say was oh i know that really sucks that happened to us too now what you've done is you've made yourself the focus of the story instead you say oh god it had been horrible so what'd you do how did it turn out now it's a conversation again you're having about that and this is simple things that we do. We think that by saying, oh, it was horrible. It happened to us too, that you're identifying with it, that you're, you're it's the opposite. You're, you're saying to them, oh, hear my story. Let's make this about me, not about you. It's funny. We, you and I were talking in the green room, right? Let's call it the green room. It sounds fancier. So we were talking in the green <laughs> room. Yes. <laughs> It sounds really Hollywood. Let's stick with that. So we were we were talking in the green room about the fact that I recently had my first daughter a couple of weeks ago. Yes. Now it's really funny when we talk about stories and unsolicited opinions. You get two camps. You'll get somebody who says, "How are things?" Okay, so a very general, non-specific question. Yeah, you know, it's good. Lack of sleep. Oh my god, I remember when X Y Z was one years old and this happened immediately. I'm like, oh wow, okay, okay, this is about you. Versus the individual who goes. Man, that must be challenging. Tell me a little bit about how you and your wife have coped for the past 24 hours with all that lack of sleep. I'm like, oh, wow, you care about me. Let's let's talk more. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, I can breathe. And we go deeper right. into questioning. And it's fantastic. It's exactly what you said. Sometimes storytelling can be more well, misused and it can really become about you. And that's making you feel significant versus making the person you're speaking to feel significant. Precisely. Precisely. And it's I think incredible. a lot of sort of the prepackaged stories that sellers are given basically does. And mm. because you're assuming you understand the depth of the buyer's situation, it's like, Oh no, there's, they've got a story. Yeah. Right. And so our job is to bring that story out yeah. and by asking questions and listening. So what's one question that a seller can ask to extract the story from a buyer, but doing it in a way which is heart-centered and actually genuine versus contrived and engineered? <laughs> well, I don't think there's one, right? I think that that follow-up questions are a great way to do that because you get beneath the surface. Yeah. And we talked about that. That's why I led, led with those. Yeah. But every question you ask hopefully leads to that. And so mm -hmm. one, one challenge, I would reframe the question a little bit that you posted. Okay. All right, hit and me. Reframe. Challenge, as a challenge for the sellers and say, make it a goal on your next discovery call or whatever is to ask a question you've never asked before. Because mm -hmm. then that's going to lead you somewhere, right? Somewhere you don't know where it's going to go. And that's that story start coming out, right? Because if you go in and you ask the same questions all the time, you're getting the same story. And you tend to think that everybody has the same story because they give the same answer to your same questions. 
Mm. And what you're not understanding is <laughs> when you ask your scripted questions to the buyers, you're not the only vendor they're talking to. They've heard the same question from five other vendors or 10 other vendors. They give you a scripted answer. Mm. How fun is it, though, when you personally get asked a question that you've never been asked before? Do you just get this little, I get these little, this like weird cheap thrill. I'm like, oh, that feels good. That feels good. (laughs) Yeah. Hugely memorable. Right. And you do that. You make yourself memorable. There was a study that was research that was talked about in a book that came out in the last year. It said that 46% of sellers they surveyed like 10,000, 14,000, 14, over 14,000 companies. The buyer's basis of the 40, 46, let's just say 50% of sellers are completely indistinguishable from one another. I mean, unmemorable. Hmm. I'm not surprised. Yeah. And so we also know from other studies, like from Challenger Sale and, and Forrester yeah. and some others, other authors have, have done research on this, is that I think it's challenger sales, 53% of the buyer's decisions based upon their experience with the individual seller. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if virtually 50% of sellers are considered unmemorable, mm. <laughs> what sort of buying experience are you creating Yeah. for the buyer? Well, not a good one. And so we wonder why win rates are low and so few sellers are hitting their numbers and quota. It's like, this is really part of it. Is this a big part of it? Is this experience we're creating for the the buyer, whether it's making sure we truly understand what's really important to them, you know, make them feel understood, whether it's, you know, making that sort of putting that understanding in the form of this vision of success that they can relate to. Mm. We're just not doing that. We're not focused on it. We think it's about the product and the price and the function. It's not about that at all. You know, there's a firm in Australia that run by a friend of mine, it's called Trinity Perspectives, and they've consulting firms doing win-loss analyses for well over a decade all around the world. And they recently summarized some of the data they'd found out from all these, oh, well over a thousand interviews, a couple thousand interviews with buyers. This is not survey data, this is interview data. And they summarized into nine reasons why you win the big deal and nine reasons why you lose the big deal. Not one of the nine why you win or why you lose had to do with the product. Mm. Not one. Mm -hmm. Had to do with functionality. Nine primary reasons why you win or lose had to do what you as a seller are doing with the buyer. Mm. And so in the framework of my book, right? You know, say there's either selling out or you're selling in is yeah. Five of the nine reasons why you lose are directly selling out reasons. And seven of the nine reasons why you win are selling in the human side of things. And even one of the reasons, nine reasons why you win stood out was forming an emotional connection with the buyer. The buyers think that's important. Yeah. You know, we have people on LinkedIn that claiming that, oh, buyers don't want a human connection. Yeah. That's just not important. Blah, blah, blah. It's all about the data. Blah. It's like, hey, folks, you're selling to human beings. Yeah. Your ability to sell to them depends on your ability to connect with them, build credibility and trust. On, on, on. And it's just so. Yeah, we're in this human business. Stories are important in that regard. But the stories have, to my mind, you know, have to emanate from a place of understanding. And no doubt. No doubt, my friend. It's, it's funny. I think what, for me anyway, one of the most powerful stories, when done correctly and at the right time, mm-hmm. can be a personal story. Because that's sure. when I believe an exchange of a story is healthy. For example, if I tell you a 60-second personal story and you exchange one in return, then a connection is fused. And that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Versus the previous thing where a buyer's talking to you and you're like, oh my God, yeah, me too. You're like, oh, hold on, hold on, hold on, right? So there's, yeah, I'm all about connection, man. And I know you are too. And it leads me to the final question. And it's the idea that your four pillars, yes, begin with connection and curiosity. Now, understanding and generosity, are you able to share with the audience here how they can show understanding and generosity in a way that is aligned with the buying process versus the sales process. Sure. I mean, think about it this way and let's just, I'll take one, one simple example is and it gets back a little, what we were talking about before is yeah, you know, like at the start of the pandemic, there was this <laughs> epidemic of articles about, Oh, salespeople. You really, now's the time you have to lead with empathy. 
it's like I'm thinking to myself, hmm, haven't we always need to lead with empathy? <laughs> but what we train sellers, what empathy is, is not very useful, mm. right? Ravi, must really be hard you know, not being able to sleep with your ch- new child. Sure, that's empathy for most people. I, I feel what you're feeling. Well, how does that help you in any regard to help the buyer? Knowing that, you know, something's an issue for them doesn't, knowing that they feel a certain way about something doesn't give me any ammunition Mm. with which to use to solve the problem. And so I talk about in the book is, you know, one of the things having to do with understanding has to do with using the right form of empathy with buyers. And so the traditional form we're all taught is compassionate empathy. I Mm. I feel your pain, right? Okay, fine. You feel my pain. So what? What you want to do is you want to use what's called cognitive empathy, which is I'm going to ask my questions to understand why you feel the way you do. Mm-hmm. Now, if I understand why you feel the way you do, then I can actually take some steps to try to cure it, right? But yeah. absent that understanding, I can't. So empathy itself is really this form of sort of sustained effort to try to understand. You know, I call it engaged curiosity. You know, engage curiosity continues to understand why someone feels the way they do. So that's one simple level of illustration, let's say, of the understanding is, okay, you think, you think you're empathizing, but really what you're doing is you're sympathizing. And sympathy mm. isn't useful. No. So what you want to do is you want to have true empathy, which is an understanding of why they feel the way they do. So that's just one, one simple example. You know, generosity it's not a word that's used oftentimes in sales, right? Because most people think about sellers as takers, not givers. And mm. yeah, you have to be a, an effective giver in order to really be successful at sales and, and giving from the standpoint of, Hey, Ravi. Yeah. I want to help you get everything that's important to you. And if I'm able to do that, I going to get what's important to me. So that's okay to be transparent in those motivations with your buyers that I'm here to give knowing that if I affect, I give effectively, I'm going to get what's important to me ultimately too. And one of the illustrations of that in the book I give is this, just a simple idea of, of being really intentional every time you interact with a buyer to provide something of value that helps them move closer to making a decision. Mm-hmm. So put it in the context of thinking, okay, if I'm going to engage with a buyer, it doesn't matter if it's an email, a phone call, a Zoom call, in-person meeting, whatever, I'm asking them to invest time and attention in me. So what are they going to receive in exchange for that investment? And what that has to be is that as a result of investing their time, they're closer, some distance, doesn't have to be a huge step, but they're closer some distance to making the decision than they were beforehand. Otherwise, what was the point? Why send them an email if it's not helping them? Just to be nice, they don't care. They got a full inbox, right? Doesn't mean, yeah, you could be connected and have a connection, but you still have to be mindful of the fact that you have to make good use of their investment of time and attention in you. So as a seller, or if you're a sales leader, you should be able to go through every opportunity in your pipeline and answer two questions. What does the buyer need from me right now to move closer to making a decision? And as a result of receiving that from me, what steps are they going to commit to taking? And if you as a seller can't answer those two simple questions about every opportunity in your pipeline, then you haven't been digging deep enough with the questions. Ladies and gents, the doctor of selling, the (laughs) doctor of selling. Thank you so much, man, for your time, energy, and attention. You know, it's funny before we do go to the final question, I promise, which is um, it's around the pandemic. I think the word empathy actually fell into salesy behaviors. Now on the selling with love podcast, I heard you on earlier this year, you said about wanting to draw a line in the sand when it comes to salesy behaviors. And I actually think this whole, Hey, I'm going to be empathetic and I'm going to do X. Like you said is hold on. When did this become a tactic per se? Isn't the way that it should always be done, which is crazy. But anyway, my man, as you know, the show is called the influential communicator. And one of the things I always love to ask guests before we wrap up is who is the one person that you look up to as an influential communicator today and why? Uh, great question. I think Adam Grant, probably somebody really? that I follow. Yeah. Oh, nice. I follow a lot. yeah. He gets it. Yeah. He writes about the human perspective of things quite a bit. I mean, it's just mm. something I was reading recently about advice he was given about sending emails. 
and Mm -hmm. that what we don't do in emails is we don't set expectations for when action needs to be taken. Mm -hmm. So we just send out these emails and people receive them, whether your boss sending out to your people report to you or whatever. And without this, he says this one sentence is people don't, Oh, I should, I should respond now, right? It's Saturday. I should respond or Sunday. I should respond. Whereas he said, the boss could put on, said, you know, this doesn't need an immediate response or, and you can do that with your prospects too. Ravi, just, yeah, following up on our last conversation, you'd asked about this. Here's the answer. Yeah. Does that meet your needs? Could you let me know today? Just put something simple like that, that just sets an expectation for when someone needs to take action on it and respond. Mm. And yeah, just, it shows a respect for the other person shows respect for your own time. And yeah, he's, his, I love his books, give and take and, and it's more recent one. Yeah. That's my, somebody I follow. I like it. I like it. I think as well, the expectation concept is key, right? Because it, um, yeah, I think it's actually the most polite thing that we can do, right? Because we're letting somebody know what we expect from them in this specific scenario. It's actually, um, yeah, it's very simple, subtle, but it's interesting. Yeah. And there's, there's, I was reading part of a, a research paper somebody had published on over the weekend. Yeah. About egocentric bias and all these other things that are playing. Yeah. But it's yeah. just like, yeah, just show somebody a little respect and say, here's what the expectation is for a response. And just think about sort of the multiplier effect that would have just in the way of people's perception of, you know, the stress that's generated from after our work or after our emails or even during work when, you know, they get inbox full of emails and thinking, how do I prioritize these? Yeah. Well, we could help people with that by just showing a little consideration and saying, yeah, this is not urgent. Yeah, get this to me next week or, yeah, could you give me a reply today or by tomorrow? And yeah, you can say that to buyers as well as a seller. I'll tell you what, that is a disease amongst investment banking, startups, where everything is frantic. Like, where is it? I expected this yesterday. So I love that because it's transferable everywhere. Now, I guarantee people are listening to this right now being like, where can I learn more about this book that Andy keeps talking about? So my friend, where can people learn more about Sales School, the six-week program, and also your book, Sell Without Selling? Where can they grab a copy? Yeah. So the book is Sell Without Selling Out. And Selling Out. Sorry. Sell Without Selling Out. And available wherever books are sold. Amazon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, if you want to follow me, follow me on LinkedIn. And, you know, I, I don't think I have the URL for, for selling school. I think if you just send me a direct message on LinkedIn, I'll, I'll get you hooked up with the link because we, nice. we haven't put the landing page live yet as of the moment you and I are talking. So, but yeah, hit me up on LinkedIn. I'd be glad to give you all the information you wanted. Well, I'll tell you what, by the time this is out, that link will be out. So what we're going to do, ladies and gents, it will be in the show notes, or you can reach out to Andy anyway, but I'm going to put it in the show notes for you. Andy, my friend, thank you so much for your time, brother. Part two sometime soon, but I'll see you very soon. All right, my friend. Ravi, you do a great job. Thank you very much. Thank you, my friend. See ya, ladies and gents, next week, same time, same place. Peace. Oh, okay, okay, hold on. So you thought that this was the part of the show where I say something like, okay, ladies and gentlemen, if you did enjoy the show, then please drop us a review and do share it with a friend. Well, I'll tell you what, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to be predictable here, okay? Do share it with a friend and do drop us a review if you got some value from today's episode, okay? So if you want to impact people, remember, you need to learn how to influence them first. 